Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see if those salted caramel and pecan cheesecake pots were just as easy and delicious as promised, and we'll introduce an American classic no-bake pie you may remember first trying as a child. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into common baking ingredients and decide what room temperature really means, and more importantly, when it really matters. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. had a fun Zoom cookery class recently that I'd love to tell you about. Oh, yes, a Zoom class. So fun. I took a class on pavlova making with a baker and chef, Skye McAlpin. And I knew Skye because I have her absolutely gorgeous cookbook, which is called A Table in Venice. Is this a book that you have seen, Andrea, or heard about? No, it's not, but I love that title. I do too. (laughs) Sounds great. So Sky was born in the UK, but was raised in Venice, and the book is an absolute delight. Not only is it full of delicious Venetian dishes, but it does something so well that I so appreciate right now in that it acts as much as a travelogue as a cookbook. And by that, I mean she does such a wonderful job of explaining the history and the traditions around the dishes that she's talking about. But she takes all the pictures herself, too, Andrea, and it is one of the prettiest cookbooks that you're likely to see. I think that right now, especially with travel plans being on hold and suspended and not knowing when or if or how that will become part of my life again, I realized how much I was really responding to the cookbook for that reason also. I really like my books these days on my Kindle, the Mm -hmm. books that I read, mainly because I typically read late at Mm -hmm. night in bed. And so it's nice to have something that I can have a really nice low backlight on and not disturb my husband. But even though I have purchased a few cookbooks on Kindle, mainly because sometimes I just can't not do it when the price is so amazing. Yes. Having a cookbook live in your hands while you're cooking, and especially one like this where it sounds like the pictures Mm -hmm. are such an integral part of the story, there's just nothing that can beat that. No, I agree. And I am a paper cookbook person all the way for that reason. And, you know, something like this, it's just you want to savor, you want to read. And if you're a person who appreciates reading cookbooks too, then I encourage you to give this one a chance. She's got a new one coming out. In fact, I think it has come out by the time this episode airs, and it's called A Table for Friends. So that might be worth looking into. I know I will be for sure. So anyway, back to the Pavlova class. All of this to say I was very excited to like see her and meet her in person and all of that. Now, Andrea, I have made a Pavlova, and so it wasn't so much for the the, – technicality of this dish, I guess. Just a chance to be with other bakers and to kind of meet Skye. And let's pause for just a second and remind our listeners what a pavlova is, because I know, at least in my opinion, it's a lot more popular over in the United Kingdom where you are than it is over here in the U.S. 
And, you know, it really should be more popular everywhere because it's so delicious <laughs> and it's so easy. Yeah, but good good point. A pavlova is a mixture of whipped egg whites and sugar, and that's essentially it. You beat it until stiff peaks form and it gets really glossy. And you've heard us talk about making uh, meringue and pavlova on the show for a long time over the years. So you make a very stiff peaks in your KitchenAid. It whisks for, gosh, you know, I don't know, many minutes, depending on the the strength of your mixer. And then you put it on a parchment-lined baking sheet. And I think mine was probably about a 9 or 10-inch round, depending on how many Mm -hmm. egg whites you're using. And you bake it really low and really slow. And what happens is it gets so crispy on the outside and then marshmallowy gooey on the inside. And you can put berries this time of year. That's what I did. Berries. You could do passion fruit. Mm -hmm. Other times of year, you know, any kind of fruit you could think of. Chocolate and strawberries. Whipping cream, of course, on top. It is so, so good. And It was just really fun to take this class because I noticed that when I really slowed down and paid really strict attention to her tips, then, I mean, Andrea, I had the most beautiful pavlova I've ever turned out. And, oh, I know. And I failed to take a picture, darn it. Oh, my goodness. I know. Can you believe it? I (laughs) Demerit. Boo. I know. Believe me, it was. I was, maybe I was just so blown away by the beauty. I was kind of stunned, but. Okay, well, you have to recreate that. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's just kind of pavlova is a is a general recipe. You should have no problem mm-hmm. finding that kind of anywhere online. Nigella Lawson is a huge pavlova person. So if you have any of her cookbooks, I think she's got at least one in, in just about every one of her cookbooks that I have. But it was also just a really nice reminder that, you know, we're all missing our in-person cooking classes. But if you have the opportunity to do one online, they can also be a really nice connection with other bakers all around the world. And you might tune in for something that you wouldn't necessarily go to in person. I'm not sure I would have done pavlova in person because I know how to make it already. But uh, yeah, I really encourage you if there's locally, internationally cooking classes online uh, to give them a try. I had a great time. I had the same thing. I attended a class with a group called, I think it's pronounced Nochi. It's the New Orleans Cooking and Hospitality Institute. And oh, mm-hmm. the chef did a recipe on pickled berries. Okay. And, you know, I love to pickle and I love berries, but I've never thought of doing the two together. Oh, yeah. And he was working with fresh Louisiana strawberries. And it was a short class. It's a an easy topic. And they sent a PDF ahead of time with all the ingredients you would need. So if you wanted mm-hmm. to bake along, you could. Right. And I agree with you. I thought this was so much fun. And it was so easy. And certainly, I would have loved to have been there in person, but that wasn't going to happen on a moment's notice. So I really think that's a great idea to continue to look for these online virtual opportunities that are probably, I'm guessing, going to continue. And I think you just hit the nail on the head there, Andrea, too, is that it was in New Orleans, but you were not at the time. So it really does, in a way, it opens you up to be a lot more flexible with where you're looking for classes. I mean, people all over the world are doing them. And that's a nice thing about being able to do it online. Yeah. But But now I've lost my excuse or a reason I need to go to Venice. No, no, no. Never lose that. No, no, no. It is a magical, magical place. So you can get the book for now. Take Just get all excited. Take a look at all of her beautiful pictures. I was so impressed because not only is she a recipe developer, but she took all these 
absolutely gorgeous pictures and you can just tell how much she loves loves her her city it's it comes through on every shot multi-talented woman it sounds like no kidding i have two final thoughts on pavlova i cannot let go (laughs) one is because i don't make it on the regular i'm realizing that when i need to think about it is probably last month when strawberries were first in season Mm -hmm. i immediately think of strawberry shortcake Mm -hmm. and so now instead of strawberry shortcake i want to consider as another option strawberry pavlova yep and it's also gluten-free it's like you read my mind i was gonna say it's (laughs) such an easy alternative to you know take a strawberry shortcake but um use pavlova instead and then you've got a gluten-free treat yeah number two When I visited you in London, one night your daughter and I went to the local grocery store. And am I crazy or did I see adorable little mini pavlovas like in the (laughs) – I I would call it the deli section. So they were Mm pre-made just like you would find the pre-made shortcakes in the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. No, you're not going crazy. No, those are here. They they sell them pre-made in the large size. They sell them pre-made in the mini size. And – they're very good. The quality of the store-bought is, is good. You, you'd be hard-pressed to tell that it was store-bought. And often if we're going to a party or, you know, our, our neighborhood here has a summer party most years, and always someone will bring one of those minis, you can fill them with some lemon curd and then some whipping mm. cream and the berries. But don't despair just because strawberries are gone, Andrea. I mean, think of all the other berries that are coming in now. Raspberries, oh, sure. blueberries, mm-hmm. blackberries. And I think it's really pretty, especially because the pavlova is so kind of starkly white and then yes. the whipping cream and then you have all the really vibrant colors of that fruit. It's it's a gorgeous dessert and people should really get into them. Yeah, pavlova. Pavlo- I'm calling it. I'm calling it the, you know, international food trend. 2021. Mark my words now. <laughs> okay. I, I thought I only had two final thoughts on pavlova, but oh, no. I currently have one more. It's and an then expansive I subject. Yeah. I'm realizing, too, that when you make it, I don't know how many egg whites the recipe calls for, but regardless, you're going to have egg yolks left over. Yes, And you will. what better companion for <laughs> the pavlova than in my head in the summertime, perhaps some lovely ice cream or custard or a creme brulee or lemon bars. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with those leftover egg yolks. Including make your own lemon curd. You could do that too. And then you could top it with that. Yeah. Don't let any of that go to waste. And you will be surprised. It's only like three or four. I think we used four egg whites. Maybe just because they look so big and billowy. It does. Because it billows mm. up so hugely. You get a lot of bang for your buck with just a very few egg whites. Yeah. How did people make those before the stand mixer? That's a great Amen. question. <laughs> I have this image of some poor person oh. slaving away in the downstairs galley with one of those huge metal bowls and the enormous whisk. Okay, I will <laughs> promise to come back at some point. It might not be next week, but it will be a little history of the pavlova. I know that Australia and New Zealand both claim ownership of of the pavlova so i will just do a little more digging perhaps it's a more modern dessert for that very reason that it had to wait for electricity (laughs) interesting okay uh to be followed up upon we we thought we could put pavlova in this two to three minute mini segment up front but apparently we have much more to say okay okay stay tuned stay tuned that's right 
Let's talk about our bake-along this week, which was the salted caramel and pecan cheesecake pots from Olive Magazine. And uh, this was a no-bake dessert, which is perfect for this time of year. Toward the end of July, things are heating up. Mm -hmm. Stefan, how did this one turn out for you? Andrea, you know how we were talking last episode about your love Was it last episode or two episodes ago about your love of having a frozen cheesecake in the freezer? And then we introduced the mini (laughs) cheesecake pots. And so going into this, I was just craving like crazy Mm. a cheesecake. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think it let me down a little bit in that regard. So I have a little issue with the title. But, you know, it was so easy. And I think it was really perfect for this time of year. I also think you could make some modifications, and I want to talk about what I did in that regard, too. Yeah. Perfect. Well, let's start off and look at the ingredients. And for the crust, we needed six hobnob biscuits, one tablespoon of melted butter, and 30 grams of toasted and chopped pecans. Now, Stefan, Mm -hmm. I had pecans. I had butter. As you can imagine, I had a little bit of difficulty finding hobnobs over here in the U.S. But luckily, when you had described them and talked about what people should substitute, you mentioned the word odie several times. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing you did because I was at a grocery store where I finally did have the hobnobs. They had two versions. Both of them had the milk chocolate on top, which you had told me was Mm -hmm. fine. So I decided to do that. Right. But I could either buy the oat version or the wheat version. And so I was so happy that you had mentioned the Odie flavor. So I bought the Hobnob oat version. And I can confirm that those are very, very delicious just on their own. (laughs) Indeed, they are. And how lucky that this recipe only needed six because then you had at least like two-thirds of your sleeve left over. Yes, exactly, which came in really handy. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that the base of that came together really nicely. The Hobnobs, although they are kind of a crunchy texture, they crush up really nicely. That was really easy. Yes. The tip here is to put them in a bowl and roughly crush with the end of a rolling pin, and that worked great. Mm -hmm. I would say that mine were in rough crumbs, and then I mixed in the melted butter and the toasted and chopped pecans. I did hold back a few pecans for the top. And then you go ahead with the filling, which is the mascarpone with the double cream, three tablespoons of icing sugar, One lemon, zested and juiced. I liked that order that they put that there. Now, Andrea, I have to say I was a little bit nervous about the combination of lemon with salted caramel, which you're also going to put into this filling. What did you think about that? I paused at the same point. Okay. I thought, this is odd to me. Yeah. It just didn't seem to fit. So I absolutely felt the same way, but I still did it because that filling is so incredibly thick. I was like, I definitely need this lemon juice to even be able to mix these items together. Well, that's a really good point. I paused as well and I went ahead because I thought that what they're trying to do here is create a tangy cream cheesy filling like a cheesecake and you needed that acidity because mascarpone is just fairly rich but it doesn't have too much of a flavor in my opinion and then you're just putting the cream too so I thought what they were trying to do was make a tangy cream cheese-ish filling. I think you're right. I typically buy the brand of mascarpone in my grocery store that comes from an Italian company. I can't remember off the top of my head which one it is. But I went and bought a different one this time. 
It was from the Vermont Creamery. And the only thing that was a little bit tricky is the recipe calls for a 250-gram tub, and this tub was 226 grams. Oh, so close. I know. And it cost $8. And so I wasn't going to buy two and have all this leftover mascarpone cheese, although I'm certain I could just eat it with a spoon. So the reason I'm bringing this up, Stefan, is when my husband tried this dessert, and he absolutely loved it, he mentioned numerous times the tangy flavor. And I do think that comes a lot from the mascarpone. Mm. Back when we made Gemma Stafford's easy 10-minute tiramisu, Mm -hmm. Both you and I purchased the store-bought mascarpone, but she made a comment in there that you could make your own mascarpone at home. Oh. And I looked at that recipe, and it's simply double cream and lemon juice. Think about this particular recipe, which is mascarpone, double cream, icing sugar, and lemon juice. And if you'd made your own at home, it would just be more double cream and lemon juice. So I think that lemon, right, that tang really does come through. Well, Andrea, I really wish I would have had your brand of mascarpone then because my overall assessment of this filling was that it was just bland, even with that lemon juice. And going in with the thought of having a really tangy cheesecake, it didn't match up to a cream cheesy flavor. So that's a really good option for next time because they were really easy. They were make ahead. They were individually sized in your four glasses It says to layer, I totally forgot that part, but they would be beautiful if you chose to do so. (laughs) (laughs) So I do think it's fairly adaptable and you could play around with it, but I need more bang for my buck in that filling. Well, my feeling was definitely good, and it had a lot of bang for the buck. Interestingly enough, I found it a little too tangy. Oh, fascinating. When I look at this dessert Mm -hmm. and I see the caramel and the oatiness, I don't then want a tangy taste. I I think I just want sweet or bland. So that's funny. Maybe we should have just switched our results and we each would have been happy. You know, that's a good point too because the hobnobs already have a lot of flavor going in and Mm -hmm. I also use the chocolate-coated version. But to make this more real cheesecake-y, I would do a graham cracker or even like a ginger snap biscuit, something like that Mm, Yeah. at the bottom instead That said, Andrea, when we introduced these last week, we had talked about making them ahead and chilling. I did do that for about six hours. Did you pop yours in the fridge for any time before serving? I did. Yep, same thing. I made them about noon and we had them after dinner that night. So actually about seven or eight hours. And I think that worked fine. I mean, the recipe doesn't specify that, but I don't think you need to serve them right after assembling. I didn't have any issues with the fact that they were nice and cold and chilled. No, me either. I actually think it worked a little bit better. I think the flavors mellowed a little bit. Stefan, I did have another huge win on the ingredients that I wanted to tell you about. Normally, when I see double cream in a recipe, I just try and find the heaviest cream I can find here in the U.S. Mm Mm-hmm. But at my local grocery store, I actually was able to get a little jar of English double cream from the Devon Cream Company. I am so excited for you, Andrea. Finally, (laughs) it's happening. It was very exciting. However, I must add a pause to this. So you recall back when we made our pinoles that I called them something like, I don't know, the $45 cookie? Oh, yeah. Mm. Based on the ingredients? Okay. I'm sure were I to purchase these things in the UK, the prices would not be what they are here in the US. But between the hobnobs, which was about $6, Mm -hmm. the mascarpone, which was $8, the little tiny jar of double cream was $8. And then I splurged on the salted caramel. This is only me. You don't have to do this. 
and I bought a jar of the Franz salted caramel sauce. Oh, that's good stuff. So I spent about oh my gosh forty dollars on the ingredients. Yeah, ten ten dollar cheesecake pot. Yeah, it's the ten dollar cheesecake pot, but um, but it was worth it, and I did have some hobnobs left over, so that's fabulous. But I don't know that you need to search out the double cream. Mm -hmm. My only complaint was, I mentioned this earlier, it was really hard to mix that mascarpone and the double cream and the powdered sugar and the lemon together. At least I had great difficulty. It was thick, yeah. So I almost even let it sit for a few minutes because I started trying it first and I was like, this isn't mixing. This is like cement. And once it came more to room temperature, I was able to mix it a little bit easier. <laughs> you also noticed that I think you mentioned you forgot to layer your hobnobs. Well, I was so excited about my Franz caramel that I pulled it out and put it on my windowsill. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I just wanted to look at it throughout the week and anticipation. Contemplate the joy of it, which meant that I forgot to actually beat it into the filling. So I completely assembled my cheesecake pots, congratulating myself on remembering the layering. <laughs> and then I took a few photos and then I was tasting it and I was like, oh, you know, the lemon really doesn't conflict with the caramel. And then I went, oh, wait a minute. Well, good to know you really liked the flavor without it, though, too. I did. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't like caramel, right. if you can't get your hands on any, then it sounds like it's going to work yeah. just fine, too. I rallied from this. I said, I have now purchased and fondly stared at this glass jar of caramel all week. I must use it. So what I did was I took a few spoonfuls and put them in a tiny little pot on the stove and heated it up. So it got nice and mm -hmm. melty and pory. And then I poured it over the top and the sides of the cheesecake pots. And it turned out just fine. And I'm really glad I did that because I liked it better with the addition of the caramel. Okay. Yeah, I think for me, ultimately, I need to play around with this one to make it a true cheesecake pot in my mind. Yep. But that said, I think it works really well as a template recipe. And if you can get your hands on actual cream cheese also for the filling, that's usually a little bit easier to whip. You might not have to then also use the lemon juice in there. I like the idea of the layering and individual desserts just feel really nice and cool in the summer to me especially. And this is a completely make-ahead dessert. Totally. So you can do it the morning of and after dinner when everyone's sitting down and relaxed and no one wants to do any work. All you have to do is walk to your refrigerator, pull these out, grab a spoon, and have at it. So it's a great dessert for easy entertaining, I think. Well, Andrea, let's hope this week's Bake Along is also easy. And it seems like it will also fall into this assembly category I am so excited. I have been so excited to introduce this pie since whenever we started planning these July shows a few months ago. Finally, it is time for the no-bake grasshopper pie. This comes from the Spruce Eats and a baker named Elaine Lem. Andrea, I just have such a fondness for grasshopper desserts. And the grasshopper, as listeners, you may know, is a kind of kitschy, retro-y, bright green cocktail made with everyone's favorite bright green liqueur, creme de menthe. <laughs> <laughs> it's truly, it's truly like Wizard of Oz green. It is so, so green. It is. That might be the ingredient that you have to track down. Otherwise, I think it's going to be really easy. So let's jump feet first into the no-bake grasshopper pie. 
One of the reasons I like this particular recipe is that many of the grasshopper pie recipes that I found used Oreos. Yeah. And I know that you can certainly find Oreos over in the American (laughs) food store in London, but sometimes they cost a pretty penny. So I like that this particular recipe called for 12 ounces of chocolate digestive cookies. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in the U.S. and you can't find a chocolate digestive cookie, I think you would be more than fine using Oreos. You probably would just take the outer parts of the Oreos and not include the cream filling. And I would call that a chocolate digestive cookie. Yeah. And I mean, that's the that's the crust, which is just the cookie and then three quarters of a cup or 170 grams of unsalted butter. And, you know, this is also nice. We're doing another pie. That's one of our 20 for 20s to do pies all year long. It's a no bake. It's a no pastry crust. It's a cookie crumb crust. You're going to crush up those cookies, mix them with the butter, press them into your pan. Now, they call for a nine-inch springform pan, Andrea. I think a pie dish would probably work well here if you don't have a springform. You know, it just raises some questions about, was this written by a UK? I mean, I'm not sure where Elaine is based. So much of this sounds British, but grasshopper pie is very American. It's, It's an interesting blend. I can't remember if she is British, but I know I originally found her that she's written for Waitrose. Okay, okay, that makes some sense then, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Andrea, how thrilled am I to see the filling ingredient, the first filling ingredient, is one cup of marshmallow fluff. And how more excited (laughs) am I to tell you I found it just off the shelf at Tesco. Hooray! (laughs) Oh, excellent, because I was thinking you wouldn't be able to find it. Me too. And that I would need to refer you back to our Merry Marshmallows segment we did back in December where we made our own homemade marshmallow fluff. So, okay. If you want to make it from make it from scratch, go for it. Otherwise, you know, it's just that jar of fluffernutter or whatever the brand is called. And um, that's good stuff. Yep. And then your filling is the marshmallow fluff, four tablespoons of creme de menthe liqueur, and two cups of whipping cream. Now, Andrea, creme de menthe is not readily available here in the stores I looked at, it is, what do you call it? Like a, I'd almost call it like a novelty liqueur. I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of got a reputation. And anyway, I did find it on Amazon and that came straight to my door. So I do have it, but I also have, and I will post in the show sheets for this episode, which is uh, 186, a do-it-yourself creme de menthe if you would like to make it at home. Oh, what a great idea. Excellent. Yes. I was able to find the big bottle in my grocery store, but I didn't want to really spend the amount of money for the big bottle, given that I only needed four tablespoons. And so I then was able to find at my local sort of wine, liquor, big box store, the little mini bottles of creme de menthe. And so one of those airplane mini size bottles had four tablespoons plus a tiny little shot extra. Okay. So if well, you find the mini bottles, you only need one for the recipe. And for people who do not want to have a liqueur in their pies, you could certainly substitute and leave that out and just do a little bit of green food coloring and that would be fine. But I think you want some mint flavor too. Oh yes, um, good point. So <laughs> green food coloring and a little bit of mint or peppermint extract. Yes, thank you. Yeah, definitely. So then you are whisking the marshmallow fluff with the creme de menthe, beating your cream, and folding that together. 
And then here comes our chilling process. You're going to pour that mixture into your prepared cookie crust and put that in the freezer for two to three hours. Now, importantly, Andrea, I think you need to plan ahead and take that out about 20 minutes before you plan to serve so that it can come up a little bit to room temperature and make serving it easier and uh, probably also kind of making it more creamy and fluffy again. I think so, yeah. So that is the rundown of the no-bake grasshopper pie. Listeners, we hope you will bake along with us. Remember, we'll have a link to all of these recipes we've talked about in the show notes for today's episode, which is episode 186, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, the other day I was trying to send you a picture of some ice cream I made, and I could barely snap the shot before it started to melt. Oh, yes, I remember. I think you said it was a really hot day for you. Wasn't it about 85 Fahrenheit or about 30 degrees Celsius? Yes, and believe me, that ice cream was not the only thing melting in my kitchen that day. (laughs) And it's not just the finished product that is affected by rising temperatures. Baked goods can be affected by the temperature of your ingredients as well. So let's sit down and talk about when your ingredient temperature matters and when it doesn't. That's perfect. So first, Andrea, answer a burning, haha, question for me. (laughs) What's the official definition of room temperature? I know you talk about having a cooler house than normal, so I'm guessing your room temp and my room temp may be two entirely different things. And I think you'd be right there. But luckily, there is an actual standard for room temperature when it comes to recipes. Would you like to guess? I would. Hmm. Okay. If um, normal body temp is 98.6, but I'm comfortable in a house around 68 Fahrenheit, I'm going to guess it's right around like high 60s, low 70s. Perfect. Ah. It's close to 70 Fahrenheit or 21 Celsius. Since I typically keep my house around 65 degrees, I find that my ingredients typically fall on the cool side, and that's been most noticeable to me when I'm trying to rise bread or soften butter. What about you, Stefan? Does your house run hot or cold? Well, it really depends on the season. Mm. We have that whole wall of windows to our garden off the kitchen, so in the winter, it's cooler than normal, but right now it is well above In fact, I have a whole cactus garden in my kitchen now just because of that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So it's really great for softening butter, but not so great for the baker's general comfort level. Yeah, I bet. A few shows ago, I mentioned the chocolate chip cookie recipe from Baking at Republique, which called for butter that was pliable but still cold. Now, I enjoyed this instruction because it meant I didn't need to be patient and wait for my butter to soften. But it also got me thinking, why do baking ingredients need to be certain temperatures? And this is also something that has fascinated me since I moved from the U.S. to the U.K. As I've mentioned many times before, eggs in the U.K. are not refrigerated. So when I'm using a U.K. recipe that specifies an egg, I assume they mean a room temperature egg. Whereas in the U.S., many recipes have to call out if they want the egg at room temperature. Yes. Eggs, butter, yogurt, sour cream, cream cheese, heavy cream, and milk are the ingredients you'll typically see called out for at room temperature. Stefan, would it surprise you to know that for years I ignored this instruction? (laughs) I'm shocked. I'm absolutely (laughs) shocked. (laughs) Yeah, not really. What made you finally change your mind and decide that the recipe developers weren't just trying to drive you nuts? Yeah. Well, I took my lumps, literally. 
Trying to cream butter or cream cheese that you've pulled straight from the fridge is just an exercise in frustration. It Mm. took me a while to realize that I needed to plan ahead with my baking. And so these days, I usually pull my cheese or my butter out of the fridge the night before and leave it on my counter to soften. The ideal temperature for softened butter, by the way, is 65 to 67 Fahrenheit, according to the experts over at America's Test Kitchen. If you forget to pull your butter the night before, you can always use my trick. Fill a Pyrex bowl with boiling water, let it sit a minute or two, empty it, and then dome that bowl over the butter or cheese that's sat on a plate to soften. Usually it takes about 5 to 10 minutes and you're good to go. And I can do the same with eggs by simply placing a refrigerated egg into a mug of warm water. But back to the why. Good old science gives us the answer. When ingredients like egg yolks and butter are room temperature, they can more easily form an emulsion, and that traps air when they're baked. That gives you a lighter and fluffier baked good. Also, room temperature ingredients are more easily incorporated than cold, as I learned when making the cheesecake pots this week. And that leads to a smoother batter and a consistently textured baked good. That makes a lot of sense. I, too, know that cold ingredients do not mix together as easily, if even at all, which can lead to clumpy frosting or flat cookies. But there are times when you do want your eggs cold. Your egg whites, that is. We visited Intimidation Station back in episode 177, and we'll remind listeners once again, when making meringue, keep your egg whites and mixing bowl chilled for the fluffiest of peaks. I do the same before I whip cream, a trick taught to me by loyal listener Christy, who puts her bowl and mixing whisk into the freezer to chill ahead of time. It works a charm. But Andrea, what if the recipe doesn't state the temperature of your ingredients? Am I just supposed to wing it? (laughs) Don't worry, Stefan. When you're not given specific instructions, use cold ingredients for your flaky baked goods, like pies, tart crust, biscuits, scones, or puff pastry. We've talked about this in our pie months. February 2017, 2018, and 2019. Yes. And we've talked about why some of the fat needs to remain solid before that baked good goes into the oven. It's those small pieces of solid fat, like butter or shortening or leaf lard, that are studded throughout the dough. They'll melt in the oven, creating little pockets of air, otherwise known as flakiness. For these recipes, you want to make sure your butter, eggs, cream, etc. are cold before making the dough. Aha! Whereas when I'm making something with a cohesive dough or batter, or anything that won't have a flaky final texture, that's when I want my ingredients to be room temperature. And this covers a lot of baking. Think cakes, quick breads, and cookies. All right, we've covered when you need cold ingredients and when you need room temp ingredients. Is that it? Not yet. Sometimes even room temp isn't warm enough, like when you're trying to rise bread. The ideal rise temperatures for bread are between 80 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Higher temperatures may kill the yeast and keep the dough from rising, whereas those lower temperatures will slow the yeast and you'll have a longer rise time. So it's not a disaster. It'll just take longer. We've mentioned multiple times how much we love Alexander Stafford's trick for turning your oven into a proofing box. Simply set the oven to preheat to 400 Fahrenheit for one minute only, then turn it off and place your dough inside. Although since I've learned that trick, I've had to scratch a proofing box from my wish list, darn it. (laughs) Last thing though, Stefan, I want to reassure you that while ingredient temperatures are important, at the end of the day, you may be okay breaking the rules. What? Me? Break the rules? (laughs) Well, I am on a bit of a tear these days. (laughs) 
You'll be happy to know that those fabulous folks over at America's Test Kitchen have done some rigorous testing for us to see if using room temp eggs in a cake versus cold eggs in a cake really made a difference. And in a blind taste test of two yellow cakes, they decided the final results were negligible between the two. Oh, good to know. But then that raises another question. How do I get to be one of those cake testers? (laughs) Right? America's Test Kitchen. Call us. Uh, Listeners, let us know if you have any questions or challenges when it comes to the temperature of your ingredients. Send us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or drop us a note in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning and next week we'll see if the classic no-bake grasshopper pie has reignited our passion for green desserts and we'll introduce an almond granita to close out chilled out month with an icy finish. Finally, we'll chat through listeners' favorite desserts to eat when the sun is shining and temperatures are rising. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. To see if using cold eggs in a cake versus pulling them straight, mm, cold eggs versus straight from the fridge, those are both cold.